Let us pray before we read God's word. Spirit of glory, Spirit of God, bless us with a word of life this day to restore, support and strengthen us as we seek to be one with you. Two readings this morning, um, one from Psalm 68 and one from uh, John 17. Psalm 68, verses 1 to 10, and then 32 to 35. God arises, his enemies scatter, and those who hate him flee from his presence. As smoke is blown away, so you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked are destroyed before God. But the righteous are glad. They rejoice before God and celebrate with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. God in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the desert, the earth trembled and the skies poured rain before God, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You, God, showered abundant rain. You revived your inheritance when it languished. Your people settled in it. God, you provided for the poor by your goodness. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise, praise to the Lord, to him who rides in the ancient highest heavens. Look, he thunders with his powerful voice. Ascribe power to God. His majesty is over Israel. His power is amongst the clouds. God, you are awe-inspiring in your sanctuaries. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And from John 17, 1 to 11. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone that you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with that glory, with that glory I had before you, sorry, with you before the world began. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, 
and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Now, would it surprise you if I said that accepting a promotion at work can sometimes be the wrong thing to do? It would surprise you. (laughs) Well, in our day and age, if you do well at your job, you tend to get promoted, which is a good thing, generally. The problem is, sometimes we can be promoted for a job for which we're not actually competent. The stress may then overwhelm you. Your character will start to break down, and those who rewarded you with the promotion might start to think that maybe they made a mistake. Well, they didn't, but we can get overwhelmed. Well, the worst example of this that I can think of was that of our former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. You might remember that guy. He had several instances of public outbursts well-documented in the media. For instance, uh, Rudd reportedly had a heated exchange with an Australian Air Force steward over a meal service during a flight. The incident was widely reported in the Australian media. Uh, During his stint as foreign minister, Rudd had a controversial exchange with a Chinese interpreter while giving a speech in Beijing. He was accused of berating the interpreter for his translation skills. Uh, There were frequent leaks from anonymous former staff members about Rudd's alleged temper tantrums, making harsh demands and demeaning behavior towards his employees. And then a video surfaced on the internet showing Rudd swearing and expressing frustration while trying to record a message in Mandarin. While this wasn't a public outburst in real time, it did give the public a glimpse into his behavior behind closed doors. Now, I draw attention to these instances not to suggest that Rudd was not a competent prime minister. I actually thought he was a pretty good prime minister. But to highlight here that character matters more than competency. And when we are overwhelmed and stressed, we lose control and then our real heart comes to the surface. Try as hard as we might to keep our mouths under control, they will reveal the state of our heart eventually. So how then might we turn our disordered heart into a right heart? Well, in the gospel according to Matthew, we find a story that has two parts to it, which point us in the correct direction for transforming our hearts. We're talking about Matthew chapter 15, and in there it starts by continuing the story of Jesus and his disciples after Jesus walked out to them on the water. Jesus had done this because they were traveling together by boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus wanted to join them because they had gone ahead. So revealing himself to be a little bit of a show-off, he joined them out in the middle of the sea. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you can walk on water, why not do it, right? Of course you're going to. So go ahead, Jesus, do it all you want. So he goes out and joins them on the sea. And then the story continues where Jesus and his disciples reached the south 
uh, the northwestern shore of the sea, coming to a village between Capernaum and Magdala called Gennesaret, a place where Jesus had performed many miracles. After healing many of the locals of their sicknesses there, he got into a bit of a stoush with some of the local religious leaders. Now, these religious leaders were very concerned, very, very concerned about Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands before they eat. Very concerned they were. They took offense because Jesus' teaching ran counter to their own. Rather than interact with the truth of his teaching, these religious leaders grumbled against God. In rejecting Jesus and his teaching, these religious leaders became the weeds rather than the wheat of an earlier parable that we looked at in Matthew chapter 13. And even worse, they led others into sin through negligence at best or intentionally at worst. Now, last week, I noted how Jesus was gently critical, yet tender, toward the little faith displayed by Peter. In this passage, chapter 15, from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is not tender at all toward the lack of understanding shown by the religious leaders and then his disciples. There's a difference there. He gently criticizes their faith, but when it comes to lack of understanding, he is much more forceful about it. His point, and I can kind of understand, because his point was fairly obvious. It really did not need to be complicated by the Pharisees. Jesus' point was not hard to understand. A disordered heart is a primary cause of sin. Doesn't need a lot of explanation. A disordered heart causes sin. For out of a person's heart comes evil thoughts, comes murders, comes adulteries, comes sexual immoralities, comes thefts, false testimonies, and slander. Thinking and speaking and acting in these ways are what defile a person. Now, depending on a person and his or her particular weakness, a disordered heart can cause poison to break out in many, many ways. We can hide that disorder, but our mouths reveal our motives, thus revealing the state of our heart. For instance, pride. Pride is a poison. Pride is an excess of belief in one's own worth, merit, or superiority. It's not that we can't be good. When we start to think about how good and how great we are, it starts to become a poison in our own heart, in our lives, and towards others. It's written in the book of Proverbs that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Is that hard to understand? Not at all. A prideful heart will always reveal itself in what we say and in how we talk to and about others. Now, the antidote to the poison of pride is humility, which is an absence of pride or arrogance. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 is a perfect contrast between pride and humility. The Pharisee, how great I am, God. The tax collector, have mercy on me because I am not great at all. 
This is a perfect demonstration of pride and humility. But then another poison that erupts from a disordered heart is covetousness. Now, covetousness, I get it. It's an old-fashioned word, but it really captures it well. It involves greed. It involves possessiveness. It involves envy. A covetous person has an over-eagerness for material goods or even someone else's possessions. The biblical injunction in the book of Exodus could not be any clearer. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do not covet. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 tells us that in his or her greed, a covetous person is an idolater and has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Covetousness is a poison. The antidote to it is magnanimity, philanthropy, generosity. Another poison is lust, which is defined as a desire to gratify the senses or bodily appetites. It can be a sexual desire, especially seeking unrestrained gratification, or it can be a desire to master over as a lust of power or pleasure, etc. Lust, desires, strategies and practices that can help manage lust include mindfulness, prayer, and meditation, which help us to become aware of our feelings and our thoughts and may provide some distance from them. Also, self-discipline and self-control will help you manage lustful thoughts and feelings and could include setting boundaries for yourself or avoiding situations that trigger those feelings. Another strategy is healthy activities and hobbies can distract you from lustful thoughts. This could be anything from sports to painting. Do something else, essentially. Remember, though, lust is a normal human feeling, but like any emotion, it's important to manage it in a way that is healthy and respectful to yourself and others so as to prevent it from further poisoning you and your relationships. Anger is a feeling that may result from injury, mistreatment, opposition. It's recorded in the gospel according to Matthew that Jesus stated, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Do you think maybe avoiding anger is important? It certainly is. Because when it's left unchecked, resentment and anger exacerbates a disordered heart and can make us ill like a deadly poison. Our Lord's antidote for anger is forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness and forbearance. And then finally, a disordered heart harbors gluttony, which leads to a person eating, drinking, or indulging to excess. In the book of Proverbs, it is written, don't associate with those who drink too much wine or with those who gorge themselves on meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor and grogginess will clothe them in rags. Do we eat to live or do we live to eat? We should eat to live, of course. The antidote to gluttony then is moderation. We should serve the Lord and not our own appetites. We should live soberly, 
quietly with contentment, without greediness, gluttony, or drunkenness. So we can see then in this very quick summary that pride, covetousness, lust, anger, and gluttony come from a disordered heart. And our mouths will reveal the motives underlining, underlying our thoughts, words, and actions. The religious leaders at Gennesaret, they had it wrong. And the disciples did not understand that when you and I stand before the throne of the Ancient of Days, he will not ask you if you washed your hands. Your parents might, and it is a good thing to do, don't get me wrong. But God the Father is more concerned with the state of your heart than how clean your hands are. There is no hiding the state of your heart. You can think you are a good person, but the motives under even your goodness will come out and your mouth will reveal the real state of your heart. The opposite of a disordered heart is a heart that is right with and before God. Lest you think having a right heart is not possible and give up applying any effort toward it, the second part of the, the, our reading from the Gospel of Matthew provides just such an example of a right heart. It describes an ordinary woman with a simple faith, but a faith which should embarrass all of us when we consider the many times our mouths have revealed the disorder we harbor within. So verse 21 starts like this. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. So when Jesus and his disciples left Gennesaret, they traveled to the area of Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile coastal ports north of Galilee in the ancient region of Canaan. That's how our story starts. Then we read, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. So a woman of that area approached Jesus and asked him to exercise her daughter, but did so in a quite intrusive and annoying way. Now take note of the fact here that this was not an Israelite woman but what they would have called a Gentile woman from the land of Canaan. She did not grow up in the Jewish faith. She was not steeped in its stories, yet she called Jesus Lord and she called him son of David. She was what was called at the time a God-fearer, a person who converted to the Jewish faith without necessarily taking on their cultural practices. So this Gentile woman had taken the time and exerted the effort to get to know and to understand the Jewish religion and its scriptures. She discovered their truth and wanted to know more of it. So she read it pers- um, uh, intentionally and personally for herself. So she had read those scriptures, she understood enough, and then she heard enough about Jesus and seen enough to believe that he had great spiritual power, that he was the one of whom the scriptures spoke. She placed her faith in Jesus to a degree far beyond most of Jesus' target audience, which is why he commended her for her great faith. The story continues. Jesus did not say a word to her, 
his disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. See, this woman's need was also great. And she did not shy away from trying to get Jesus' attention. She became intrusive. She became annoying. Pay attention to me. Now, in other instances, Jesus had been drawn to such people. But judging from the description of the moment, in this case, he ignored her. That really does seem out of character for Jesus. So we have to pay closer attention. What's going on? Well, the disciples then encouraged Jesus to send her away. Now, at first glance, it would seem like they wanted Jesus to rebuff her, to reject her request. But judging from Jesus' response, it is more likely they wanted Jesus to just quickly heal her so she would leave them alone and stop annoying them. Just heal the woman, will you? Let's get on with it. Sadly, both of these possibilities are entirely within character for Jesus' disciples. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we're still left wondering, why did he ignore her at first? Well, the answer is revealed in his response. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, Jesus here declared his own mission, his own mission was primarily to the people of Israel. They were his family by descent. These were the ones that were in covenant with Yahweh, whom Christians know of as God the Father. They had a relationship with God already. So Jesus' message at that time was targeted to them specifically using language and idioms drawn from the Old Testament in which they were all steeped. This does not mean Jesus did not care for Gentiles. Of course he cares for them. Whatever was going on for him in the moment, he felt he needed to help his disciples understand right there and then the nature of his mission in comparison to what would become their mission. You remember the covenant with Abraham, God blessed that family so they would be a blessing to all the nations. So God's plan was always to all the nations. But it is the disciples, the apostles, who would fulfill that part since the ancient house of Israel failed miserably. But Jesus had to speak specifically to the house of Israel to help them and draw them back to God. So from the story, as Matthew told it, we cannot know whether she heard Jesus say this or not. So let's not assume. But if she did, she may have walked away. I mean, if, Jesus, if you had heard him say that, that I don't care about her, I care about this group of people, what would you do? You would walk away. Phew. Fill in the blanks, right? But she didn't do that. So did she hear him or not? It doesn't matter. What we do know is that she came back and instead knelt before Jesus and implored him, Lord, help me. Now, I have to be honest with you. Jesus' next statement is entirely shocking and out of character for him. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, hear this. Jesus was here using a proverb that was likely common to the Middle East at that time 
We all do it. We throw away these phrases that are ripe and pregnant with meaning because we know that we all understand them. So you say this quick little sentence and everybody gets where you're at. That is what Jesus was doing. He was using a phrase that he knew that everyone around him would basically understand what he was getting on. But let's admit it. It does have a touch of the old racism about it. The point is, Jesus was testing her. Did she really believe in him, or was she merely using him for his magic? She needed some magic. Is that really all that she was concerned about? Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, wow, that is a really powerful response. Because this woman matched his softly racist proverb with a potent display of humility. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. See, this Canaanite woman did not respond as if Jesus had belittled her or put her in her place. She was not offended by him. So she didn't receive what he said as being critical or racist or attacking or offending her. The fact that she didn't respond that way tells us that what we don't know, she understood there was more going on here. She was not offended by him, but she was engaging with him, thus revealing that her request was heartfelt and her response was humble. She had reflected deeply on the teaching and the works of Jesus. The woman asked, not that she herself be healed, but that Jesus would show mercy on her by healing her daughter. Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Oh, that we all would have such faith as hers. And this is precisely why Jesus commended her great faith over others. For she harbored no pride, but demonstrated humility. She harbored no covetousness, but demonstrated generosity by asking for the healing of another. She harbored no lust, for she did not desire anything for herself. She felt no anger, despite the offense alluded to her. She exhibited no gluttony, for she was not seeking an excess, but only what was needful. In her request, and then her response to Jesus, this woman's mouth revealed the motives of her heart. The Canaanite woman's character was shaped by her increasing awareness of the one true God and her devotion to seek and to find. For as it is written, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And then from the Proverbs, I love those who love me and those who search for me find me. So search for God and you will find him. She had done that, even though she did not have a family history or a childhood steeped in the Israelite scriptures, her heart knew that there was something more going on in this world and she sought it and found it there and then ultimately found it in Jesus. So we discover in her example and in this story that the antidote to pride 
to covetousness, to lust, anger, and gluttony is cherishing the teaching and example of Jesus. See, if you recognize the beauty in Jesus' teaching and value the goodness of his example, you are more likely to pursue and to achieve goodness for yourself. The more you read about, reflect, and meditate on his goodness, the more the Holy Spirit will transform your character to be more like Jesus. Your disordered heart will become right, right with God. Your motives will become good and pure. So be diligent in self-control, not by putting on a facade of gentle speech, but by following Jesus' example. You will more like, be more likely to follow his example if you cherish it, if it is precious and valuable to you. But when you make mistakes, and it will happen, and your disordered heart erupts, then follow Jesus' teaching by seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. Friends, if our mouths reveal the motives of our heart, then we had best deal with the repercussions by adopting humility against pride, generosity against covetousness, self-control against lust, forgiveness against anger, and restraint against gluttony. Cherish Jesus' example to follow Jesus' example. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have provided us an example. You provided us teaching in the way that we should go. And you have sent your son, Jesus, the one, the, perhaps the only one, even possible, of following your will perfectly to show us that indeed it is possible. But for it to be possible, we need our hearts cleansed and purified. For so for all of that indignity and degradation we have brought upon ourselves, for all that makes us unclean and dirty, we ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake, mistakes we make and for our, the rebelliousness of our hearts. Forgive us that your Holy Spirit might move within and cleanse us, purify us, heal us, Take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Bring the disorder of our hearts into rightness with you. Give us the courage and the confidence to follow Jesus' teaching and his example all the days of our lives, that we would not have to think, say, or do anything that we regret later, but instead we would do that which is good and pleasing and perfect. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.